our way to curb this pandemic is, I hate to say it because it's out there being said every day, but it's our it's personal behavior. Brakes are not going to be put on it with a vaccine in the near future. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. First, a programming note. Hopefully short-term, we've changed the production schedule of the National Podcast of Texas. Episodes will be shorter, with no set release day, and because of circumstances conducted by phone. We'll do our best to make up for the quality of the audio with the quality of the guests. I'm Andy Langer. Our guest this week is Dr. Rebecca Fisher from Texas A&M University's School of Public Health. She teaches epidemiology and biostatistics, and her research efforts focus on tropical diseases, epidemic investigations, and infectious disease diagnosis and surveillance. Dr. Fisher called Wednesday from the Brazos Valley COVID Investigation Operations Center, which is based at Texas A&M University, and in conjunction with the Brazos County Health Office, utilized contact tracers, case investigators, and epidemiologists who support the investigation of positive COVID-19 cases, provide access to resources for those affected, and promote best practices for managing the impact of the virus. We spoke about what A&M might look like this fall, the short-term future of college football, what we still don't know about coronavirus antibodies, and the frustrating collision of politics, economics, and public health. This is Dr. Rebecca Fisher. Welcome. So let me start where we've started with Dr. Hotez and similar experts. The biggest thing this far into this that we still don't know about the virus that would be universally useful to know is what? Probably the most useful piece of information, or at least the biggest burning question on everybody's mind is, uh, once I have coronavirus, uh, am, I, am I going to be immune to it uh, again? Am I going to be immune from reinfection? Uh, unfortunately, it's an answer we just don't know yet, and it's an answer that is going to take us time to learn. Um, and that's because if we want to know if somebody's protected, um, by their antibodies or has immunity to um, becoming infected again, we have to wait and follow them over time and see if that happens. Um, and if coronavirus disease does end up being uh, seasonal, uh, like many suspect it might be, then we might be waiting till a second season or a third season before we have the actual answer to that question. So I think that's what people are really, really wondering about. Um, and and that will also affect our conversation about herd immunity, because if individuals are, in fact, immune to reinfection, then that brings us closer to herd immunity, individuals who are becoming immune. Uh, if, in fact, individuals are not um, having immunity that lasts and protects them in the future, then the herd immunity question is a completely different um, beast. Have the experts largely given up, though, on the idea of herd immunity, though, in that the death toll to get there wouldn't be worth it? You know what? You are exactly right. This is an important consideration. We can talk about herd immunity, and it's a really useful thing to talk about, in particular with diseases that have uh, vaccines available that we can implement. It's not really useful for us to think about in terms of, of COVID-19, where we don't have that yet. The number of people, the sheer number of individuals that would need to be infected for us to be able to reach herd immunity is just, um, it's just unfathomable. It's unpalatable, uh, you know, and, and the death toll is, 
is, would be immense in that situation. I think most experts are suggesting that at least 70%, but more likely 80% of individuals in the community would need to have immunity to COVID-19 for that herd immunity to be protecting the other 20 to 30% of individuals. Um, you know, 70% of, of, of Texans being infected with COVID-19 just takes our death tolls um, just, just off the charts into a really a place that we can't get. You're talking to me from the headquarters at A&M for COVID-19 response and study? We are primarily doing response uh, at our, at our um, center here. This is the COVID Investigations and Operations Center that Texas A&M has set up in partnership with the local health department. Um, so really partnering with our health department to reach out to individuals who are diagnosed with COVID-19. We talk to them about their, their health and help them find resources that they need in the community. Uh, and then we also do the piece that's called contact tracing. And the contact tracing is where we, where we talk to um, the infected or diagnosed individual about whom, with whom they've been in contact so that we can then reach out, reach out to their circle of contacts uh, and provide them with resources and provide them with information about coronavirus disease and what it means to be exposed uh, and who should be tested and where they can find testing um, and how they can find the resources that they need to to be self-quarantining uh, so that they uh, don't pose a risk to others if, in fact, they should be infected. Is the testing coming back quick enough for you to do contact tracing? Because we keep hearing that with the lag in testing, tracing is almost out the window. It really depends on the local epidemiology and, and the situation and capacity and in each local situation. Um, in our particular situation, we're seeing test results come back um, often within two to three days. So we are still in a place where we can do that contact tracing. Not every vendor or laboratory um, can provide results that quickly. And of course, as our numbers go up and we need to test more individuals, those lag times Grow, and that's uh, you know due to the, the long testing lines, but also the long lines uh, in analysis. So as the samples are waiting to be processed, uh, so certainly as the uh, pandemic grows and as the local uh, epidemic grows in any city, town, or county, that becomes more difficult. Um, but we are uh, at least in the Bryan College Station area where Texas A&M is. Um, we are um, at, a, at a place where, where we are handling our capacity. How much of your work right now is based on projecting what it might look like if and when students come back? This is a question that we ponder constantly at Texas A&M and the leadership um, at Texas A&M University, not just uh, at the main campus in College Station, but um, at campuses all across the state of Texas, uh, are really concerned about this, um, using information that is out from, from different modeling teams across the country, as well as the internal Texas A&M infectious disease COVID-19 modeling team and public health expertise to try to get a handle on what this situation is. Uh, you can imagine that um, in a town, of, uh, you know, roughly 300 and something thousand individuals that a college campus of 80,000 uh, students um, 
could poses a big dynamic shift in uh, just the demography of the population when those students come to arrive to campus uh, to come to class. So this is a big consideration for uh, the leadership at the university, but also for the local health department. Um, of course, many people have seen in the news the sort of um, shift in uh, the, de the demography of the, the coronavirus epidemic in Texas. Uh, recently, so um, during the past month, the governor has suggested that you know what we really saw was an, a boost in this a younger age group that we hadn't seen before, um, and the numbers bear that out. It's not that other individuals, older age individuals, were contracting coronavirus disease less or becoming infected with the virus less. It's just that we really saw a surge in this younger age group. This is the real concern for for university campuses um, across the country. Um, not just at Texas A&M University. How is the conversation around college students returning different than the grade school conversation? The conversation is different for a few reasons. Um, let's talk primarily about the independence of the age group that is attending college. So um, oftentimes this is a new gained independence or a new sense of independence there's a bit of a sense of, um, you know, they're, they're, they have a low perceived risk of disease and, and also a, a sense of invincibility. This is typically um, a very healthy time of, of one's life. And uh, this age group we know is suffering mostly mild symptoms, although hospitalizations and fatalities do occur in the college age group. Um, the majority suffer mild symptoms and recover without consequence. For these reasons, the individuals in these age groups have this perception that the disease is not so severe. It's really not a threat to them. Um, we've seen news reports of COVID-19 parties. Um, and unfortunately, not everybody who attends a COVID-19 party and becomes infected survives their illness. Um, so what is really needed is a particular kind of messaging, public health messaging and health promotion to, to these age groups. Now with the younger age individuals, are, we're also seeing that they're, uh, you know, disease, we don't know if they're technically infected less frequently, but they're certainly not showing signs of illness as frequently as the older age groups. Um, but uh, we do still think that they have a role in transmission to others, not necessarily a heavy role if they're not becoming symptomatic and, say, spreading cough uh, and sneezing and, you know, snotty kid nose stuff around, uh, around the household, but they still could be, be bringing those infections uh, or, or transmitting those infections around the community. In particular, we worry about um, the children introducing infections into their, their parents or grandparents because we know um, from different analyses that have come out that those children have high contact with all other age groups. Um, so most age groups tend to mix within them, themselves. Um, children tend to mix with, with various age groups, and that's primarily through, through school and through family member contacts. Um, College-age individuals also mix primarily with themselves, but in terms of mobility and social engagement, they're engaging in society in many of the same places that our older individuals are engaging. So, for example, um, attending restaurants uh, and 
attending restaurants for social activities or for, you know, to go out to eat with friends. This is happening a lot in our college age group or our 20 year olds group, but it's also happening uh, in our older above 55 age groups. So this is a potential uh, mixing of, of age groups, a young, healthy population that may not be at, at risk for severe disease, um, mixing with an age group uh, or a demographic that is potentially at risk for severe disease. And that's a concern um, for bringing students back to, to campus um, in terms of, of posing a risk to their community potentially. I mean, at the core of the question of reopening schools and later down the line about football, at the core of those questions are questions that hinge on politics and economics. And I suppose every infectious disease has to get around to dealing with those issues at some point. But we're at a point where they're so enmeshed now that you can't isolate the public health issue versus the politics and economics. Is that a fair assessment, that that's where we are right now? That's a fair assessment, and I do not, at least I don't recall, but I, I don't think this has ever really been uh, brought to light so much as, as in this situation, in this pandemic. Um, you know, when uh, in Texas, when we had a, a, a shutdown um, early on, an aggressive move to protect the health of the public um, during a time when we had a new disease emerge that we didn't seem, we didn't understand how to control, uh, and all we knew was let's let's stop people from interacting uh, in the community by by having people stay home, um, closing businesses so they're so they're not out there mixing. Um, and this really brought to light these sort of economic considerations and then, of course, the political considerations of doing that. Through that process, we learned uh, how the economy might be able to operate in our current situation. How can we safely protect customers and business owners um, and other members of the community um, during a time when we have this virus that we don't know how to control and we don't um, really have a solid treatment uh, or, a, or a vaccine, and the only way that we can prevent it is actually through preventing or breaking that transmission cycle, which is facilitated by interpersonal contact. So we've learned a lot through there, through, through that process. Um, the fallout really is this polarized um, situation that really hovers around politics um, and economics, and these are important issues, but it would be great to pull the politics out of this. And, and of course, the, the economic piece is inextricable. But if we could pull the politics out of this and really focus uh, energies on um, what can we do, what are those preventive things that we can do to safeguard our community? And, and you mentioned, you know, football and students um, of all ages, and uh, not just those, but also then their parents and the attendees at these events. Uh, because there might be a safe way that we can um, start to engage in these activities, um, and we are learning how to be careful and protect ourselves from the virus and to protect others. Um, but certainly throwing uh, our arms up and, um, it, you know, throwing everybody back in the, the field or back in the stadium all, all together without um, taking measured precautions is not the right answer. 
Um, and if politics push us into a situation where, where that feels like an option, then that's the wrong move from a public health perspective. I mean, isn't no football safer than football with 50 percent attendance? I mean, sure. If we're talking about public health, you know, I, I am an epidemiologist and I'm going to err on the side of caution in terms of making public health recommendations. No football would, would certainly be safer from uh, the pandemic perspective, from uh, the perspective of, of individuals being infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, is, is that the right move? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly we don't want to keep schools shut down. We know now more than ever just the, um, particularly for the younger age individuals, the social um, and emotional and, and educational fallout that can happen from, from, you know, keeping everything closed down or from keeping activities from happening. Um, I don't know what that fallout would be for football, um, except for a lot of sad fans and then potentially some, some careers impacted by these, uh, particularly student athletes uh, and, and other players. Um, and then an economic piece as well, as we don't have uh, fans coming into the games. So there's a lot to unpack here. From a disease transmission standpoint, we certainly don't want fans uh, in a situation where they can be passing the infection on to others. And let's be clear, many people are infected and spreading to others and do not know it. They're completely unaware that they ha have been exposed to the virus. They may not have symptoms or they may not have symptoms yet. Um, and this is why precautionary measures are so important. Did we reopen too quickly? Did we run through the phases in Texas too quickly? And is that what put us where we are now in Houston, in Austin, in the Valley, et cetera? So I think our current situation, the, cur the situation where we are now, and particularly what we saw start to emerge um, at the end of May and into June, and this really sharp increase in cases, and not just an increase in the number of cases, but an increase, you know, in, in that, that per capita number that, that we look at, the attack rate. So how many Texans are being affected um, and, and, you know, recently having passed that 1% mark um, this past weekend in terms of who's been diagnosed, um, which, of course, doesn't include those individuals who don't test for whatever reason, uh, fear or, or failure to um, um, realize that they might have coronavirus disease or maybe just a lack of access to health care in general. Um, but what we, you know, we know that we were going to see more cases as the economy reopened for the simple reason that we are having people interacting again. So this interpersonal interaction, this is the root of our, of our transmission. So we knew that we would see more cases as we um, allowed individuals to be interacting more in public um, and, as a way we, and as we figured out how that, would, how that would happen and as we navigated what that would look like for different businesses. Um, did we, did we proceed through that too quickly? It's hard to say because what ended up happening is we had, um, you might call it a perfect storm of events that spun us into a situation um, where transmission really started to, to reel out of control. And I think that started with, with this sort of reopening process, but then um, spurred by a holiday, uh, you know, Memorial Day weekend where by the very nature of that holiday is to have these large social gatherings, barbecues, um, backyard parties. Uh, we saw uh, people in Texas tubing down the rivers, a favorite pastime of this young age group, especially on a holiday like this. 
um, which meant, of course, that they were traveling across Texas in some cases to get to those locations where they could do that. Um, and then it, it sort of spun into uh, our, our protests. So uh, with individuals voicing their, their opinions and their support and their protest of different things outdoors in groups, um, you know, we, we saw more social gatherings, people that had been pent up because they had a shutdown. Uh, these social gatherings continued. We hit another holiday. So, so this sort of, I, I called it a perfect storm, this chain of events really um, just spiraling one after the other and really uh, sending our, our case numbers reeling upward, um, and then subsequent to that, seeing those hospitalization numbers increase and those fatalities most recently um, that we've just really seen an increase in. And, and surely we're not out of the woods. Um, it remains to be seen. You know, we watch these numbers day to day, and it's, you know, one day they're up, one day they're down. Um, and so we really try to focus on these trends, and it's hard to say where we're going to end up next week or the week after that, um, but surely we're not out of the woods. When we look at those dashboards, there's the infection rate, there's the hospitalization rate. Which is the most indicative of where we are and which is the one that when we look as lay people at these dashboards should mean the most to us where we live? You know, this is, this is really tough because all of those metrics tell us something different uh, about the situation about the epidemic and how it's affecting um, each community. And and let's be clear, we can look at this across Texas, um, but Texas is so heterogeneous um, that it's that we really need to think about the different uh, areas of Texas and different regions. So local leaders looking at their particular data um, and, and being able to um, help their community understand what's going on in their local situation and giving that guidance. But I, I find it actually quite useful to look at, I, I first look at the number of, of infections that are reported. So this number is not complete uh, in terms of, of capturing all of the cases of um, SARS-CoV-2 infection in the community. We know that roughly half of those that are infected will um, develop symptoms and the other half develop either don't develop symptoms or they develop quite mild symptoms that they um, associate with allergies or or being tired or um, staying up too late or that sort of thing. So uh, at least that's what the evidence is, sh- is showing, that we're about to split half and half. So when I look at those numbers, I always sort of double those bars in my head in mm-hmm. terms of thinking about what's going on in the community. But following that trajectory, and again, you'll see these up and down, um, and some of that is reporting, and some of that is uh, actual inc- uh, changes in, in infection rate. Um, and then I look at the, the deaths that are counted. Um, and so I look at the deaths that are counted, and again, looking at the up and down, but really the trajectory and sort of the average numbers over time. and how those numbers are turning. Um, and then I look at the hospitalization numbers and see where those, where those are going. And we know that there's um, obviously a natural progression from when a case is identified, possibly to, um, to when they are hospitalized, some delay, uh, uh, unless they're being detected only when they present to the hospital, and then uh, obviously some delay before they are deceased. Now, the demographics in each of these three metrics can be quite different. We talked about the young age individuals or college age individuals having an increase in cases. Now, those are most often reflected in those case counts. So, so the just the diagnosed cases that you see reported 
um, on the, the daily graphs on the news, um, those aren't, that's not the age group that tends to be hospitalized, although some are hospitalized. Uh, the hospitalizations are mostly driven by those with underlying health conditions and uh, potentially older age group um, and, or potentially some, some reason for immunocompromise. Um, then the fatalities are uh, driven partially by who is admitted to the hospital, but it's largely um, that older age group. So that more, more vulnerable, um, over 65 age group that has the highest fatality rates. So, the, so these metrics tell us different things, and they're comprised of different individuals in our community. And that's maybe tough to, uh, you know, to the untrained eye to, to realize that at first, um, but once you sort of understand that, you can think about these numbers in each of their contexts or these metrics in each of their contexts um, and kind of glean from that a little information about what's going on in the community. When we talk about perfect storms, uh, when we had Dr. Hotez recently on, he was talking about the potential for a measles outbreak in the fall because kids have been under vaccinated because doctor's offices for at least a couple months were hard to get to. Uh, you've got now West Nile popping up. You've got the potential for a mutation or at least a second wave of this in the fall. I get the idea that we're just going to need to live with this and normalizing it's not inherently a bad thing. But this it could get worse before it gets better thing seems like it could get a lot worse before it could get better. Am I wrong there? No, hey, this could get a lot worse before it gets better. And I am uh, I'm usually an optimist. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not much for for doomsdaying, but you know, the reality is that just looking in the situation that we were in. Hey, let me tell you um just for example in the early days of our epidemic, we were um you know, I work very closely with our local health department. Um and so when we were looking at the, those numbers on a day-to-day basis, you know, we were six cases today, eight cases today, um, really following these numbers closely. And then we hit the double digits and we're like, oh, no, three days in a row of double digits, um, you know, in terms of, terms of new diagnoses. You know, we got in the high numbers and we started hitting triple digits. We, we had no idea we would ever be in triple digits. We were watching this thing go from, you know, 11 cases to 18 cases and thinking how dynamic that was. Um, you know, and then we just, you know, had uh, our local situation worsened. Um, and I'm sure this is the story that epidemiologists all across the state and country and probably world would tell you. Um, so, so sort of watching this get worse we, um, with air quotes um, is, is sort of like watching a, you know, a, a tragic play unfold and, and waiting to see what the closing act is. Um, with with coronavirus disease extending into the fall, which surely it will, and I think I think most people, uh, you know, once we started to get a feel for for how this was operating, um, we kind of expected it would extend into the fall somewhat, uh, and we would be answering these questions now. But what else comes in the fall is all of our flu seasons. What we haven't dealt with are all of those diseases in between. You mentioned West Nile virus, um, and and. What effect does West Nile virus uh, infection have uh, if you have a coronavirus disease at the same time, for example? Unanswered questions uh, about that sort of thing. 
um, what a lot of health departments reported, uh, and sort of anecdotally from across the country, all the other diseases disappeared. When we had coronavirus disease, nobody was going to their doctor um, for other diseases, um, you know, which, which is frightening because surely diseases didn't get a, go away. Uh, they were just being undetected, potentially people, uh, you know, not being treated or, or passing those diseases around the community. So it's unclear what surveillance for many of those diseases uh, what has happened to surveillance for many of those diseases, uh, and that will be interesting to see that uh, that story unfold after the fact, and if that story completely ever completely unfolds. Um, I think uh, we talk about something like measles or any of the vac- vaccine preventable diseases, um, and you know, with our measles vaccine, uh, you know, we we this captures a number. You know, we get measles and mumps and rubella, and typically, you know, these, these vaccine series come with other vaccines as well that are so vital to protecting the health of, of our community. And, and we think mostly about children when we think about this disease. Hey, measles is nothing to joke about. This is a severe disease. It's a killer. Um, it is prevented largely by vaccinations. When we have families um, afraid to go to healthcare because they might encounter coronavirus disease, or healthcare facilities that are so overburdened uh, with with treating infections or screening for what may or may not be coronavirus disease, um, we're really expecting that uh, we have a failure of our of our vaccine clinics and and this system that we have spent so many decades building up, um, and, and that herd immunity that people talk about is so important with measles, highly infectious disease. Um, it, it's airborne, so, and it's more transmissible than coronavirus disease. Uh, and it will affect our children, and we will see children die if we cannot get our vaccination rate up to where it needs to be with measles and, again, all of these other diseases. Do we know that we're under it on measles right now and under the normal rate? You know, I don't know the data on this, but I have seen a lot of reports uh, that we are lagging in this area. Um, so some of the health departments sending out uh, messaging through their social media saying, hey, remember, uh, you know, we're lagging behind in our vaccinations. Please remember to come to the vaccine clinics. Please remember to ask your doctor for vaccinations. Um, for those places where vaccines are required for, say, school um, and such, uh, you know, camps and that we, we hope that they'll be caught there uh, and that there, there will be catch up for uh, these vaccines. But it's certainly a concern we have uh, that, that we're missing these, these opportunities to vaccinate. Every day we start to hear little bits and drabs of more positive news on the vaccination front. But are we, are we getting excited maybe too soon on the idea that vaccinations are going to save us all vaccinations versus therapeutics, you fall where in terms of what might really turn this thing around? Uh, I guess if I, (laughs) if I had to say vaccinations, uh, vaccine versus therapy, uh, I would put my money on vaccines being what, what we have to turn this around. I mean, and I'm just, I'm basing this based on um, what we know about the more benign coronaviruses. So um, the common colds where we, you know, never really successfully had, you know, a knockout treatment. 
um, or a vaccine. But the good news about that has been coming out, so the good news on the research front for these potential vaccines that are coming out um, really sound like there is a possibility here. Um, now, I think, again, do we, do we, we don't bank on this to stop our epidemic. We try to stop our epidemic. Uh, vaccines are not going to come tomorrow. Uh, I, I would be very surprised from, from everything that I, I know about the process of vaccine development, uh, you know, from the, the good folks in, in, uh, at Baylor College of Medicine and Peter Hotez's group and other, uh, amazing groups across the nation. These take time, and they take time for a reason. Um, and and we, you know, scientists are working hard and and quickly on an everyday basis for every vaccine they're working on. We certainly don't want them to feel the sense that this needs to be rushed um, through a process that can't be rushed. Uh, and so it's not going to be tomorrow, and it's not going to be when flu season hits. Uh, our way to curb this pandemic is, I hate to say it because it's out there being said every day, but it's our it's personal behavior and it's personal decision to, to do, um, to comply with these protective behaviors. And, and those may be different in every community. You know, we have uh, face covering guidance and mandates uh, that are there to stop those droplets. Uh, microscopic and invisible from making it from an infected person's mouth into an uninfected person's mouth. These are our tools we have. We have hygiene, we have disinfection, um, cleaning, we have distancing. You know, everything we know about this coronavirus is that it primarily relies on this, this droplet spread, and these droplets hit the ground and they desiccate. Um, so if you're six feet away, um, you know, you can reasonably expect that that droplet's not going to hit you. So these are all things that we know. They're tried and true. They work. Um, we've heard this, uh, for ev- you know, through the evidence for, for many moons. Um, and, uh, you know, this is how we're going to turn this pandemic around. It's not going to be – breaks are not going to be put on it with a vaccine in the near future. When we talk about the students coming back and we talk about – the idea that they're going to be personally responsible. Are we unfortunately likely to come to a place where it's going to take a spike in numbers that we can directly relate to them coming back for them to take it seriously? You know, if I don't know, I don't know what the answer is in this age group. You know, I'm not a sociologist or, or a psychologist, um, I think there's a way to reach these individuals. There's a way to communicate and speak their language and convey the risk that they have for contracting disease and also the risk that they may pose to others if they do become infected. Um, I don't know what that communication is, but we need that communication out there. Um, we also need to destigmatize uh, this disease and, and everybody may not understand that there's a certain amount of stigma associated with uh, becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2 because, you know, the virus certainly doesn't discriminate. Um, but there is a fear among students that they will be, you know, shamed for doing something risky um, or, you know, 
not complying fully with the guidelines and recommendations. There's a fear that they would be sent home from their from their college or university if they report they have a fever. So we're worried about them, you know, actually presenting to be tested, which of course we want them to do. We want to help them through the process if they do become ill. But there's a lot here um, that uh, depends on us being able to communicate with our college age individuals and convey the the importance. Um, that they play in their community, and so and and through that, the importance that they that they play in stopping their their local epidemics. So I I hope that it doesn't come to a huge spike in cases with students returning, um, and I I really hope that it doesn't come to um, college age individuals uh, being hospitalized um, or suffering fatal outcomes because that would be devastating. I think to the the college community, um, and that certainly would be a game changer. But we don't want to get there, and we want to do everything we can um, to stop that from happening. As a generally positive person and an optimist, do you find yourself getting more cynical the longer this goes? Have you found yourself becoming frustrated with the numbers and the the lack of testing and the debate over the masks. Do all these things dig at you as a public health expert? Oh, gosh, all of these things dig at me. They frustrate me. They keep me up at night. I wake up in the middle of the night trying to solve how we might do X or Y or the other, how we might improve something. Uh, these certainly keep me up at night, and I know I'm not the only one. All the um, infection control people out there, nurses, physicians, Everybody in a public health department, um, you know, working in the coroner's office, uh, you know, really, th- these are these are frustrating frustrating things. I I mean, I I have told some of my colleagues this. I, I have mom shamed uh, college students, and I have wanted to reach through the phone and and shake the shoulders of somebody on the other end uh, to get them to understand the the impact and the gravity of the situation we're in. Um, it, the reality is we, we're in a we're in a dangerous situation. This is a dangerous uh, virus. It doesn't discriminate. It will infect anybody. It has the opportunity to infect, um, and we just we don't know sometimes who is going to be severely ill if they do become infected. And we certainly can't predict fatal outcomes in, in everyone. So we can't and we can't protect everyone. Um, and so. This is this is all really frustrating, and I find myself talking about these things. And you know, you know, at the end of a conversation, I feel like you know we need to go outside and run in the sunshine and fly a kite because everybody is, you know, so dark feeling. Um, this situation is is unreal. I mean, we've been studying situations like this, historical events like this. Um, you know, my whole educational career, I teach this stuff in class. Uh, never did did I think that my particular niche <laughs> that I have studied, uh, you know, in my sort of curious in this, um, you know, epidemic stuff would land me square in um, the center, an investigation operation center to stop the spread of a pandemic disease. It's really remarkable. Um, it's really historic, and it's really uh, humbling. Um, can be, can feel a little 
soul-crushing, and um, there's probably going to be some post-traumatic uh, stress and fallout to individuals working on the front lines, uh, both clinically and, and public health and, and all of the first responders out there. Um, and, you know, these are people that we really need to, need to care for and, and check on their psychological first aid. But this is a, this is a real humdinger. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Let's leave it where we started it. With the contact tracing, the obvious advantage to contact tracing is to let people know who may have been in contact with somebody that tested positive that they're at risk. Are we also learning through contact tracing what might be the most dangerous scenarios? And are we using that contact tracing information when we decide to reopen schools or to increase the capacity of bars and restaurants, et cetera? This information that we glean from contact tracing absolutely helps us understand uh, the epidemiology of of uh, COVID-19 in every local setting. So, um, so just think about when we have uh, somebody who may be, uh, have been diagnosed, tested positive for COVID-19, um, immediately we start uh, contacting first their household members. We want to talk to everybody in the household and make sure they um, know if they need to be tested and can access that testing. Uh, and then, you know, we go from there. So it might be coworkers, it might be friends, um, classmates. So, so we do try to um, really triage the conversations that we're having according to those individuals that really meet the definition of close contact um, so, so that we're not sending everybody to be tested if they really are at minimal to no risk. Um, so what we, what we learned from that is through the contact tracing um, and let's just be awkward and get this out there, that this is a tough conversation. We, we talk to somebody who's sick. We ask them about how they feel. We have their address and date of birth that we've asked them for and they're, they're, they're providing. And then, you know, we close the call by saying, can you please provide us with the names and phone numbers and, and ages um, of, of anybody that you may have been in contact with because we're going to call them. Uh, and that's a really tough thing for, for people to, to stomach, but it truly does come from a good place. Um, you know, this is not information that we're collecting for fun. We really want to give those people an opportunity to understand COVID-19 and, and an opportunity to be tested uh, and to take their health into their own hands. So, but through that process, we, we then learn um, how many contacts individuals have. So um, we learn about household size, uh, household composition. Um, we learn uh, how many individuals, uh, say, in a household setting again, um, might we expect to become infected. So potentially half of everybody in a household could contract coronavirus disease. Um, and, and in fact, sometimes, sometimes the whole family will develop coronavirus disease. Um, it also helps us understand what's going on in the workplace. So we think of these uh, say, uh, some of the plants or, or processing facilities that have been highlighted across the state of Texas um, where they're um, transmitting from one to another. Often these are, you know, tight, tightly packed <laughs> worker situations, uh, sometimes with machinery, so they're shouting, and we know that sort of the shouting is a potentially a trans, a, a, you know, an extra uh, added transmission bonus uh, where we're, we're throwing these respiratory droplets into the air. 
Um, but we learned this through contact tracing. We talked to the coworkers, and then we get the coworkers tested, and they test positive. Um, and this might help us identify a cluster or an area where some public health intervention could help, um, in this case of a workplace, an employer to, to stand up safeguards for their employees um, or protect, per, perhaps bring a public health entity in to, to make corrections uh, for an employer or a situation. Um, and certainly, again, same thing with students when we talk about classrooms um, or, or daycare settings where we can track this through contact tracing because we're contacting these individuals, we're helping them get tested, they might not otherwise know to be tested, uh, and then we know who's connected to whom and we can understand how the virus moves through the community. It's so uh, important and helpful to the local health department uh, and then further to the state health department to understand what's going on in, in homes, schools, businesses, care facilities, and, and this largely comes through contact tracing. Thank you. You can follow Dr. Fisher on Twitter at rfisher underscore PhD. Our current issue, which should be in your mailbox already or awfully soon, features a four-day, 65-mile walk along the Texas coast, which finds our David Courtney taking to the beach in search of a different kind of solitude. At TexasMonthly.com, we've lifted the paywall entirely. You can roam around the site and enjoy everything from our pandemic coverage to our deep archive in its entirety, absolutely free until the end of the year. And we'd love it if you consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment or rating us wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next time.